If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Let me end on the NA. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today, I would like to welcome my lovely guest, Ms. Amanda Ryman, PhD. Thank you very much. Does, somebody, does anybody say Raymond? Oh, everybody. Only everybody. <laughs> but you did a good job. <laughs> Thank you. I practiced right before. It's very complicated. So how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's a beautiful Thursday. How are you? Yeah, it's a beautiful Thursday. Is it? Is it Thursday? I'm telling you, I lost track of days completely. Like with this whole COVID thing, is you're sitting and you're you're on Zooms. I was in the office today too, and I had to run uh, back. And I'm like, uh, somebody said, "Hey, you know, uh, happy Friday." I'm like, "Oh shit, is it Friday already?" <laughs> like, no, 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 it's Thursday. <laughs> track of my days. Well, I can't keep track of my months, so I'm right with you. <laughs> That's true too. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, before I go into background, because what what a lot of people do, which I really don't like, and nothing against anybody, that's that's fine. But they go through and they introduce me, and they go through my my CV, and they go through my background. So Len May, blah 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 blah. I, I don't really like that. I like to have a more conversation. So uh, tell people about yourself. But that question: You grew up in Chicago, right? And then you went to school in Berkeley. I did. Well, I went to uh, University of Illinois, Chicago for undergrad and my master's, and then I got my PhD at Berkeley. Right. So were you born in Chicago? No, I was actually born in New Jersey. I am a phone company brat. So I moved around uh, quite a bit as a kid. <laughs> a phone company. Like I heard of army brat, but phone company brat. That's, that's well, when you cool. grew up in the 80s and 90s with all the shifting telephone companies and AT&T and Bell and Ameritech and all of these different shifting uh, positions of the telecoms industry. Um, you know, my dad was an executive there. And so we moved around as the company shifted and merged and unmerged and all of that good stuff. Yeah. They were breaking them up, right? Because it was mm-hmm. a monopoly back there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, that's, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, I guess too. So it's sort of, uh, closer to, to that time. But, uh, yeah. So, so you grew up, what part of Jersey? 
Uh, well, I only lived there for two years, so I really can't lay claim to Jersey, even <laughs> though it's fun to say I was born there. Once but you're born I was, in Jersey, you lay claim to Jersey. You just That's lay it. claim. I know. Forever. I can never escape. Um, well, I was born in Summit, New Jersey. Yeah. I'm from Philly, so I, I kind of uh, have a, an a understanding of people don't understand the difference between South Jersey and North Jersey and Central Jersey because it's like two different states, basically. So South Jersey has this affinity for Philly, like they, they root for the same teams, like the Eagles and all that stuff. And North Jersey is more New York. So they're like giants. Right. North Jersey is basically a suburb of New York. Yeah. And, and South Jersey is a suburb of Philly. So right. Absolutely right. All right, cool. So you went to undergrad in uh, Chicago and then you went to uh, your post or doctorate in, in uh, Berkeley, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. So how is that move from Chicago, which I really like and it's great, but Berkeley and it's a little bit of a different. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It was really interesting. When I moved to California, I had only been to California once in my life and that was as a child and it was Southern California, which those of us who live here know that that's a completely different world. Um, So when I decided to go to the Bay Area for school and I moved there, one of the things, of course, that I was struck by first was the cannabis scene. I mean, living in Chicago in the 1990s, even though I was growing my own in my tiny little apartment in my closet uh, in the city, being able to actually go to a dispensary and have a variety of products in front of you and to safely be able to purchase those products without worrying that someone was seeing you or that you were going to get in trouble was really an entirely new freedom that I was just found amazing. And in fact, I found it so unique of what was happening in California that I decided to study that phenomenon for my doctoral dissertation. And that's really how I got into the cannabis research arena was through my own experiences coming from a prohibition state and coming into a place where regulation was just beginning and noticing the difference in terms of community health that was associated with prohibition versus regulation. So, uh, what year was that that you went moved to you know a California dispensary model and all that? Is that two thousand two? Okay, so twenty years ago. Yeah, so that's pre. Uh, yeah, that's uh, when we had SB four twenty and Prop two fifteen and all that other stuff. Uh, interesting, and they they had some you know back in the day in the Bay Area, especially they actually had really effective dispensaries that were designed. But what they were designed for is to help people with their, you know, conditions and all that stuff to give them care, not, not kind of what we have now. So I, I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on sort of this whole adult rec versus medical, uh, because you've seen, you know, kind of both sides. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about the differences between the two? Well, I do think that most cannabis use is therapeutic in some manner, even if I'm using it to alleviate boredom, even if I'm using it to make, you know, dinner with the folks a little bit more interesting and exciting. I believe that that's a therapeutic use. I do think that there are more traditional medical uses where individuals have a specific symptom that they're seeking to treat with cannabis. And that was really where we started the conversation was with the medical use, primarily among people who had HIV and cancer, and were trying right. to treat very specific symptoms. But as cannabis became more normalized and more accessible, uh, individuals realized that it was an, also a great substitute for alcohol 
alcohol. Uh, It was a great substitute for ibuprofen and it was a great substitute for opiates. So I think that the evolution from medical to recreational really wasn't so much an evolution from one type of use to another, but rather a broadening of uses that made it accessible for more people and made more people understand the benefits. That being said, the medical market was definitely a different place than what we're seeing today. And I understand that we have capitalism and we have marketing and we live in a consumption culture. Uh, I do think that there's a fear that plant medicines will go the way of our food system and that we'll start to see more processed products, more products where the goal is heavy intoxication, cheap price point, but maybe not all the health benefits of a traditional whole plant medicine. Yeah, no, I have to agree with you. I, I don't like the whole recreational, uh, you know, category. I don't, I don't mind adult use. You're 21 and over or whatever the age is, you can do whatever you want. And I agree with you hundred percent on the therapeutic properties of the plant, whatever you want to use it for. If you're taking a, a drug, you're taking a substance and you're using it for whatever purposes that you have. And if you want to treat a specific condition or a disease, uh, that's up to you. But I think that the word recreational uh, but it, like, what's recreational? I mean, <laughs> soda, I, I don't know. It just, it just really muddies the waters in terms of the therapeutic properties of this plant. So I, I, I definitely uh, didn't support that. But I'll tell you, uh, now that Lori Ajax is no longer the, uh, the cannabis uh, czar or whatever you want to call it, and, and I'll get into your, uh, your ex- experience with the DPA and everything else, you have a lot more... Uh, interactions than I did. But the one time I met Lori twice and the first time that I met with her and uh, there was an attorney in the room and I had a colleague in the room, we were talking about, you know, personalization and how people weren't getting what they shouldn't. Some of them are getting adverse effects uh, from, you know, taking too much or metabolic function. I mean, this is what we do in endocannabinoid health, guide people to personalized experience. And I was trying to tell her, wasn't pushing you know, what we do, we're just trying to say, this is something that needs to be communicated because it's not one size fits all. And I said, people are having a difficult time finding the medicine that more aligns with them. And uh, she's a very stoic person, as, as you know, and uh, doesn't smile much. And she leans over and she goes to me, come on, you and I both know it's not really medicine. And it was like a gut punch. And I was like, oh shit, wait, you are the person that's creating policy or the, the biggest cannabis state in the country, that's the beacon of everybody else seeing how this is going to go. Yeah, I know Colorado was first and all that stuff, but you know, people really look at California as a market and you don't believe that it's medicine. And it took me a little bit of time to figure out but what she, I guess what she, was, she meant because she went to elaborate a little bit that it, it doesn't have you know, clinical trials and all the other factors that you know, traditional or whatever Western medicine the pharmaceuticals have. And I was like, yeah, but <laughs> there are specific reasons for that uh, that were designed in that way. But I think because the person was creating the program, meaning that we're just going to tax everybody a certain way and we're going to create a revenue stream, that recreational just became, uh, you know, the best way to be able to facilitate that. And I think we did lose a little bit of this whole therapeutic properties of plant that you were that you were talking about because we have this program that sort of intermingled everything. Uh, I can dab if I want to, or, you know, or I can actually take this uh, as a, 
as a capsule with the specific dosing and all that stuff. And I think we don't have a delineated line between the two anymore. Well, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, Lori does come from an alcohol background. So thinking about regulating cannabis like alcohol, I understand that model because it's an intoxicant in many circumstances. So you have concerns about driving, you have concerns about access from young people, you have concerns about um, overuse or use in inappropriate situations. However, I firmly believe that cannabis does not belong regulated like alcohol, but instead belongs regulated like therapeutic plants. And there are certain therapeutic plants that cause intoxication where we have to consider the user and how old they are and what their situation is. But it's not the same thing as alcohol. And when you talk about that word recreational, what that really calls out to me is this idea of frivolousness. And that when something is recreational, it's frivolous, right? It's fun. It's light. It's, you know, something you don't need, but you're doing it anyway. It's a little bit extra. I would call alcohol recreational. Um, I'm sure that there are potential medical benefits. That's not how we use alcohol in our society for the most part. Um, But I would not put cannabis in that same category. And I think that, you know, my work to help people preserve the right to grow their own is really a way to protect against the commodification of the plant. Because as long as we have the ability to stick seeds in the ground at our own place and grow our own medicine, we're not as vulnerable to the shiny marketing that emerges once capitalism gets hold of the plants. Yeah, I mean, very, very well said. I completely, completely agree with you 100%. So how did you get involved with uh, the Drug Policy Alliance? So I have been kind of a fangirl of the Drug Policy Alliance and Ethan Nadelman since I was an undergraduate. And when a 1998 uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy formed as a response to the Higher Education Act provision that prevented people with drug felonies from obtaining money for college from the federal government. And so as a response to that, Students for Sensible Drug Policy formed and had their first national conference. I went to that conference. It was in Washington, D.C., and Ethan spoke. And I was so taken by this idea that somebody who was a celebrated academic who had credentials behind him was able to speak so freely about the need to change drug policy. That was really something I had not seen before. So I went up to him afterwards and I introduced myself and I said, I'm going to come work for you someday. And I reminded him of that in 2012 when I was interviewing for position at Drug Policy Alliance. Now, back in the 90s, it was still the Lynn Smith Foundation, um, but they really paved the way for having serious academic and science-led data-driven discussions about drug policy, never forgetting that they were also advocates. And um, I'm an academic, that's my background, and I know that a lot of times it's hard to be both an academic and an advocate because academics are supposed to be objective and advocates are inherently subjective. Uh, But Ethan did it really well. And Drug Policy Alliance did it really well. So um, at the time, I was actually working for Berkeley Patients Group, which is one of the oldest dispensaries in the country. I was their director of research in patient services, which was the first time a dispensary had one of those. But I convinced them to hire me so that I could do social science research that the government was not funding. Uh, They were shut down by the feds in 2012 for a brief period of time. Uh, And so I was laid off. And then I went to work for Drug Policy Alliance as the California policy manager, which morphed into manager of marijuana law and policy once they established that unit, which I believe was in 2014. So, so what would that, what did that role entail? 
Oh my goodness. So much. Um, well, you know, there was so much happening at the time. There still is, but I mean, that was really 2014, 2015, 2016 was a really hotbed of activity for cannabis reform in the United States. So not only were we on the heels of Oregon and other states legalizing, but we were gearing up for California, which we knew was going to be an unbelievably gigantic lift as it was. It is, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, it has a 20 year old cannabis industry that had never been properly regulated at the state level. And we can talk all about the impact that that had on implementation. But my role was really to help devise the strategy for Prop 64, um, not only to bring in subject matter experts for drafting, but really think about how to enable community participation and community coordination and outreach related to the campaign. Because in order to, as Ethan loved to say, in order to pass cannabis legalization, you have to present something that is, um, that, that is, useful to people who love marijuana, hate marijuana, and don't give a shit about marijuana. Like you have to reach all of those audiences. And so it was my job to figure out how do we bring the material to the people that are really into cannabis? How do we bring it to the people that really don't like cannabis? And how do we bring it to the people who don't think this is even an important issue? And each of those requires a different strategy. So that was my main role. I did a ton of media um, and public, you know, speaking and writing about this as well, all the way through the campaign. Yeah, I, I, I definitely remember because uh, we, I used to be an owner and operator of uh, dispensaries uh, as well. And we got shut down by the feds, a dispensary called the uh, chain called Kush Kingdom back in the day. So uh, yeah, I re remember that time. It was an interesting transition and change. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm interested in, and curious about you want to, to go into a little bit more about how this 20-year uh, business, uh, you know, in a, in a black market that wasn't regulated, how that did affect, because I believe California is a completely different market than anywhere else in the country. And as people and other uh, states are trying to replicate this model, it was, it was interesting. I, I remember uh, the governor of Colorado coming on and talking about what they were doing in Colorado at a hearing in California. And I was like, no, 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 no. You guys don't understand. You guys are, that's, that's like a neighborhood in, in California, the entire state of Colorado. It's a, it's a completely different animal here. And because we're so entrenched and we, it was unregulated, I wish we could have done things a little bit differently in California to really, really shine as, as an example for the same reason you just mentioned, we've been doing it for 20 years. We should have learned from a lot of these experiences and we sort of didn't. And I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, coming from alcohol, tobacco, uh, like you mentioned, that's one part of it. But I wonder what you your thoughts are on that. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Colorado was in a very different situation. Like you said, they uh, legalized medical access in 2009. They legalized adult use in 2012. After they legalized medical use, they developed a state level regulatory program. So you were getting a state license to be a dispensary, to be a cultivator, to be a manufacturer. And that system was in place in 2012 when they decided to pass adult use. So it was fairly easy for them to take this state regulated system that they already had and just open it up to people who were 21 and over uh, versus people that just had a, Col a Colorado red card. Here in California, when Prop 215 was passed in 1996, it was written on half a sheet of paper. And all Prop 215 did was allow you to have a defense in court if you got in trouble for cannabis. So if 
I got arrested and went to court under Prop 215, I could use my doctor's note as evidence of medical necessity. And the judge was supposed to take that into account when deciding my sentence. That's all Prop 215 did. Did not establish any licensing systems. It didn't establish any taxes. It didn't establish any regulatory structure. But it did direct the legislature to do that. It said, legislature, you're going to have to take this law and now you're going to have to make actual regulations and licensing. So the, the legislature was, was directed in, in 1996 to develop a state-level regulatory program. Mm -hmm. And for 20 years after that, politicians like Tom Amiano, God bless him, out of San Francisco, tried to introduce state regulatory programs for medical cannabis. Uh, he tried multiple, multiple times, but he was not a very favorable figure amongst the conservatives in California. And the police chief and the League of Cities had a vested interest in not regulating cannabis in California. The League of Cities wanted to keep control over who was allowing cannabis and what cities were having cannabis. The Police Chiefs Association did not want regulation to happen because they were liking shooting fish in a barrel, the approach of being able to pick off any cannabis cultivator at any time without any regulatory system. So for 20 years, we had a gray market. We had counties and cities like Berkeley and, o Berkeley and Oakland and San Francisco. We had some jurisdictions in Southern California, but not many that sought to have licensing and regulation, but there was still nothing at the state level. Now in 2014, they saw the writing on the wall, finally. And in 2014, the state legislature passed the Medical Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act, or MRSA, that later became MCRSA because it was cannabis instead of marijuana. But after 20 years, the police chiefs in the League of Cities said, they're going to legalize this. They're going to legalize this by state initiative. And if we do not create some kind of regulations now, we're going to be held to the whim of the voters. And the voters are way more progressive than we are. So in 2014, they finally, after now, you know, 18 years, passed medical cannabis regulation at the state level. And so when we introduced Prop 64, we were working within a framework that had already been determined. We were working within a framework where the League of Cities had already decided that they wanted complete control over all the cities and what they could do. Uh, we were working within a framework where the police chiefs had a hand in determining how licenses were given out and what the regulatory framework was going to be around that. And so it was really that 20 years of inactivity that allowed the industry to grow to a point where the League of Cities and the police chiefs basically got to decide what happened next. And even though the public voted for Prop 64, which expanded the program beyond just medical, the writing was already on the wall about how the regulations were going to come down. And it was not going to be business friendly. And it was not going to be something that the entire state of California was going to be able to take advantage of. Yeah, I, I remember I was sitting in the Rob Bonta's office and he was uh, explaining the, I guess I'll call it a quid pro quo, that they had to uh, make some arrangements for so they can get everybody what they want. And when, I was, uh, when he was telling me what's going to happen, I was like, this is not going to work. And he said, well, this is the first step, right? So we're going to come into this. And then we're going to make changes after we get this passed. And I was like, yeah, you know what? When, when the state starts feeling some revenue and they're getting some money, it's going to be very, very difficult to make changes because now you're having you know, financially led uh, policy instead of, uh, instead of there's a need to regulate in a certain way. Even the lab regulations, even the regulations on the 
uh, phytocannabinoids that you get? Why don't we have regulations that everything is be to be tested for terpene profiles? Uh, you know, all these different things are not part of the mix. And right now it's, it's really difficult to get back to the drawing board uh, to be able to do that. But yeah, that, that makes total sense what you just said. Um, memory question for you. And they say that cannabis kills brain cells. And I argue that fact. I believe that I met you at an Emerald Cup when I was there with uh, Kevin McKernan and you were representing Flo Canna, if I'm not mistaken. I'm also friends with uh, Jordan Silva uh, as, a, as a side on that. But does my memory serve me correctly? Were you there uh, with Flo Canna? Yes, absolutely. So I currently work for Flopana, well, Flow okay. Cannabis Company, as they are now known. Um, as, yeah, so since 2015, I've been working with them as an advisor. And then in 2017, I came on as the Vice President of Community Development. And that's what I've been doing up here in Ukiah and Mendocino County for the past four years. But at the end of October, I'm actually leaving Flow Cannabis Company because I'm moving to Colorado. And Ooh. I'm going to go to a, a, mar- a cannabis market that's a lot more pragmatic, let me tell you, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. I was going to, because I was going to ask you, and I guess the answer I already got based on what you said, but I was going to ask you how you felt about the changes in the industry, which ones are positive, which ones are negative. But I think you probably feel there's enough negative changes to make you want to move to Colorado and uh, kind of plant your flag there. Well, I think something that's happening here in California, and I could have predicted this, and I think a lot of people did, is, you know, there was such a entrenched cannabis culture in California. And now there's a sector of the industry that is using the culture for marketing. And it's getting very confusing about what is the culture and what is the industry. And I think that that ends up being a barrier to California cannabis really taking off because we have such a culture. It gets very confusing. The other thing that's really hurting California is the lack of interstate commerce. I mean, under the unregulated marketplace, a lot of cannabis, if not the majority of cannabis grown in California, left the state of California. And even though we're still seeing that, I mean, only 41% of people in California are purchasing their cannabis in the regulated marketplace. Um, we have so much overproduction happening in this state and there's no place for it to go, which means that the prices are completely bottoming out. Um, so it is being really, it's really right now it's being set up to fail, but I don't feel like it's being set up to fail on purpose. I just feel like all of these factors, the culture, the 20 year gray market, um, the fact that, that California is so gigantic and so heterogeneous and there's so many cannabis deserts in the state because of that, all of these things are making it extremely difficult to do what they need to do, which is to move people from the unregulated market into the regulated market to find a price point where people stop going to the illicit market for purchases and to work with localities that haven't yet regulated to help them do so so that they can start having dispensaries and retail outlets to handle all of this supply. Um, all of those things need to happen in California in order for it to have a chance of being as successful as it could be. How, how do you see that happening? Is there, well, I, I know it's a, it's a really uh, you know, big, broad question, but do this California, do they need to bring into a, the legislation people that are you know, more versed in, in cannabis and cannabis law and regulations? Is there a model 
like, you know, Florida has its model. Okay. Florida has a really interesting model. I'm not saying that's the best model. It's the worst model. They have a model. It's a, it's fully vertical. It's medical. You know, he uh, or she that cultivates this company also has their, their dispensary outlets and uh, there's a regulation in place. Not that I agree, disagree with it, but it's a model. Is there a model that, that California can say, okay, can we borrow from this to this and sort of replicate that? What, what can work? Um, I'm going to say no. Uh, that there's not a model that we can replicate. And the reason is that, you know, even what you just said, like, you know, Florida's got this program, everybody's vertically integrated, it's regulated really well. We have thousands of small farmers in the Emerald Triangle where I live, who are not going to be able to vertically integrate, that are not going to be able to have dispensaries that are barely holding on right now in the marketplace. And these local rural economies where I live are highly dependent on cannabis, whether people want to admit it or not. So I think that even though it is very app appealing, especially for the Department of Cannabis Control to say, all right, we just want to have five big companies that are vertically integrated, that we can keep our eye on, that pay a ton of taxes, that run the whole show. That's not what we have in California. We have thousands of dispensaries in Los Angeles that have been in existence for decades that have no license and no pathway. We have thousands of small farmers up in the Emerald Triangle that have been in business for decades that have no license and no pathway. So I think that even though we could shift to a vertically integrated larger corporate model, I think we would be doing a complete disservice not only to the potential of the California market, but the culture of the California market and the economies in which these businesses exist. And so I think we have to understand that we are unique and we did a lot of this to ourselves by not regulating for 20 years. But I look at a program like Oklahoma, where it's like $25 across the count or $2,500 across the counter to get a permit to grow or to be in the, the market. And I think to myself, well, yeah, that's Oklahoma. Like, we're California. Have you met us? Like, we love to tax things. We love to overregulate. Like, that's, that's our, our persona as a state. So I think we have to understand that with a very vulnerable industry like the cannabis industry, it can't be business as usual in California. Yeah. We can't depend on taxes and regulation in order to do business. We're going to have to make exceptions for the cannabis industry, things like eliminating the cultivation tax, uh, things like not necessarily requiring localities to have dispensaries, but at least preventing them from prohibiting delivery services and other types of business in their jurisdiction. And I think unless and until we take these steps, California is not going to be successful. And I really don't think it's going to help us to look elsewhere because we're in such a unique position. Yeah, and no, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I hate to use the analogy of alcohol, but would it, would it be sort of a model where it's a hybrid, like say there's an Anheuser-Busch that comes in and then there's the craft breweries. So you basically allow everybody to produce their own uh, and allow the smaller farmers to be the craft brewery and give them sort of an outlet for that as well. And also not shut out the larger players that want to play in this field, or is that not even a, an option? Well, that was the idea. So in Prop 64, we have the micro-business license. And the micro-business license was supposed to allow small cultivators to vertically integrate under one permit, make it very easy for them. But then, of course, in the mess of regulation, it was decided that in order to do that, you all of your 
uh, licenses have to be on contiguous properties. So the idea of like having a farm up in the hills and a tasting room in town, which is what we imagined when we developed that license, was no longer on the table for a lot of folks. So I think ideally, that's what we wanted. We wanted to be able to have larger cultivators and smaller cultivators. Part of the problem also is that there's no place for the weed to go. So these larger cultivators that are in the Central Valley that have acres and acres and acres and hundreds of acres of greenhouse, they don't have any place to sell it in California. Um, And the small cultivators who are on 10,000 square feet can't afford what they're being offered now uh, in order to stay alive. So I don't think the market is quite ready to support those two dualities. The other issue is that the consumer doesn't know what they're looking at. So if we were in a situation where the consumer was coming to the dispensary and saying, oh, that's craft cannabis grown in living soil in Mendocino County, only on a 10,000 square foot farm. Well, oh my goodness, we're going to pay $50 an eighth for that. We're going to pay $60 an eighth for that. But that's not what's happening. They're paying $25 an eighth for that. And the product that's being grown in the large greenhouses is getting $60 an eighth. And a lot of this has to do with the consumer's belief about what is quality, the obsession people have with THC and potency. And so until the consumer is more educated to understand why they would want that craft sun-grown flower, and then that therefore fetches a better price, it's going to be very hard to have this kind of craft model. Because when I go to the liquor store, I fully expect and accept that I'm going to pay more for craft beer than I do for Budweiser but that's not the way the cannabis market is right now. So it's really hard for those small cultivators to carve out that niche in the marketplace when the consumer doesn't understand that they are craft and what that means. So wasn't part of the regulation that we were supposed to do some education. Uh, I believe that Pennsylvania, and I could be wrong, but one of the things that Pennsylvania does is when you get a license as an operator, whether it's a dispensary cultivation, part of your uh, you know, revenue, you have to contribute to research. And there's a conglomerate of research facilities, the six major universities there, they get some of that money and they have to use that for research, come back and then educate. And it's fairly early on the public. Uh, and I think maybe a model where the state starts participating and getting people like yourself, et cetera, to do some of that work. And so we can start creating some standards not only the standards on cultivation, what we're using, like, you know, live soil, sun-grown, uh, is, it, is it organic, wh- whatever, whatever that is. And also, uh, you know, maybe using something like our test to help personalize uh, somebody's experience and also dosing uh, as well. But it, how do we get from, you know, where we are today? It's going to, education, it definitely is, is, is key, but is the state going to participate in that? Well, they do. So part of the revenue from Prop 64, there's two chunks of money for research. One chunk is earmarked for public health research so that they, and education. So kind of what you're talking about, um, helping people understand the difference between an edible and smoking and looking at the data to see if there's been an increase in auto accidents or an increase in youth use. You know, spoiler alert, there hasn't. But that's what that money is for. And then there's another pot of money that specifically goes to the University of California, San Diego, which has a medical Cannabis Research Center, and that's for medical research. So, you know, the federal government doesn't fund clinical research. Lori Ajax was right. I mean, you know, the pathway to FDA approval in the United States.
United States, it's just not suitable for plant medicine. So we really aren't going to see it get there, but we still need to understand the clinical uses of cannabis, the benefits, the potential risks. And so there is a chunk of money for that. However, I do think that cannabis companies, when it comes to marketing, do need to do maybe a better job. Um, Flocana does that extremely well. Everybody that we work with in terms of cultivation is 100% sun grown, independently owned farm. And so we do tell the farmer stories and, right. you know, we, we bring the farmers prior to COVID uh, down to dispensaries to meet people. We did an event in Sacramento a couple of years ago where we brought a bunch of cannabis farmers and set up like a learn a learning museum scenario for legislators at this venue in Sacramento. And we had live cannabis plants. We had cannabis that they could look at under the microscopes. They could see what it really looked like up close. We had farmers there to talk to them. And I do think that that has to happen. I think more companies need to do that. But the reality is because SunGrown is such a I would say stigmatized in the marketplace as being less than quality. And we can talk about why that is. Uh, a lot of companies are moving away from SunGrow, right? That's not what they're promoting, even though that really is the healthiest way to cultivate cannabis. Yeah, and no, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I, just don't, I just don't know if, uh, because you already made a point about the obsession with THC and how people look at packaging. Like, I, I speak to people all day, every day, and the lack of knowledge is so, it's such a wide gap between like what you know and what, you know, the average Bob from Iowa uh, knows about cannabis that they don't even know what to look for to, on the packaging. So coming up with, at the very least, some standards and saying, okay, uh, here is your cannabinoids. This is what's important. Here's a terpene profile. These are the things that are important to you. Instead of this whole strain names, what we call things, uh, the whole thing of indica, sativa, indicouch, and all that stuff, trying to move away from that as an industry, I don't know how, how doable that is. Well, one of the pro programs I'm involved with that's trying really hard to address this is the Gangier program. So the Gangier program, which was founded by Greenflower Media, is really trying to do like a sommelier, but for cannabis. And the idea is to start talking about it in different terms, just as you mentioned, right? To get away from the THC, to get away from the indica sativa hybrid, and really start to to talk about how the plant was cultivated, um, how typical or unique it is in its like kind of cultivar family. What is the terpene profile like? What are the different noses that you're getting with different cultivars? And what does that do for the effect? And so I think the more vocabulary we can give consumers about these things, you know, you know how capitalism works, right? They're going to go into the dispensary and they're going to say, hey, how come none of these have terpene profiles on them now that they know what that is? And then the dispensary is going to go and look for product that does because they know that that's what the consumers want. Yeah. So it is a bit of a slow process. You have to have educate the consumer and then have them get really excited about asking for certain types of products. And then the dispensary responds and starts to bring those different types of products in. But this isn't unusual. When you look at post-alcohol prohibition, after alcohol prohibition fell, there was still a big desire for people to get very strong intoxicated beverages. During prohibition, there's this idea of feast or famine. Either I get a whole lot of it or I don't have any of it. And even though cannabis is now legal and I can go to the dispensary every single day and purchase cannabis and it's still going to be there, there's still that mentality of, 
I have to get a, this, all this cannabis and THC in me because who knows when it might go away again. And so in some respects, I talk about the cannabis consumer of today as being like a 21-year-old drinker. So, you know, when I was 21, 22, and I was drinking the Jägermeister and the Goldschlager and the Kamikazes, and, you know, I was trying to test my limits. I was trying to try a bunch of different alcoholic beverages. Sometimes I felt good afterwards. Sometimes I felt terrible. And then as I got older, I learned what types of alcohol worked for me. I learned how to appreciate a quality whiskey versus, you know, a shot of Jaeger. And I think that for cannabis consumers, for the most part, who are just getting access to legal products, they are still in that 21-year-old drinking phase. And they're trying to test their limits. They want whatever's new, whatever that celebrity endorses, whatever's going to get them really, really stoned. But I do think that as they age, we'll start to see a shift in use pattern and in product pattern. I mean, such a great analogy that you used. And, and the, but the, the biggest difference I see there is, I mean, I didn't blame the Jägermeister for, for my adverse experience. I took too much. I drank too much and I had an adverse experience. And I see the differences. They start blaming the cannabis for their adverse experience instead of saying, I overdosed myself or something like that. That's, that's the only kind of caveat difference uh, between the, the, the two industries I definitely see uh, coming up. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when it comes to cannabis, because as you mentioned, people still, there's a lot of mystery to people. And so because of that, if something goes wrong, they're going to blame it. It's not on the cannabis so much as like, the cannabis didn't tell me this, or no one told me that cannabis was going to make me feel that way. It wasn't my fault. It was because no one told me. And so I think there's definitely a sense of not wanting to take responsibility, um, which I think, again, you know, once people learn more about cannabis, I mean, if I eat too much or get too high, it's nobody's fault but my own, because right. I know what THC is. I know what edibles are. I know what set and setting is. And so I feel like there's really nobody to blame. But if I was a novice consumer and had a bad experience, I'd probably say, you didn't tell me how to use this correctly, or, you know, this product isn't what you said it was. Um, because of my own vulnerability of not having the knowledge. Uh, on Personal Plants, which is my company, uh, we produced a cannabis guide. That's 10 things you need to know before consuming cannabis. And we really brought it down to the very, very basic level. Thinking about people that were maybe consuming for the very first time or were in states where it was newly accessible. Because I do think a lot of cannabis education, unfortunately, is targeted at people that already have a basic understanding understanding of use. And there's a lot of new users out there. So I think there's definitely a need to take it back and really explain to people what they're ingesting and how to do it safely. Yeah. I was going to ask you what personal plants is. So I'm glad you, you brought that up. That was my sort of next question. Uh, and you can elaborate on that a little bit more. I have a question about, you did research around the social aspects of cannabis. So I want to ask you a question because this is, this is sort of something that comes up Everywhere I travel in the world, I mean, when you share a joint with somebody, you build a connection. This is the sort of intangible uh, properties of cannabis because it's, it's a connecting type of vehicle. Like it's, it's social. With COVID, what I started seeing, I went to an event and everybody has their own joint or everybody has their vape. So I was wondering what your thoughts on, because you did you know, do some, uh, some research on this. Are we losing this connection, uh, the social aspect of, uh, you know, passing the joint back and forth to each other? 
Well, I would say that even before COVID, vape pens started to cut into that uh, habit because you didn't really see people passing a vape pen around. It was a very personal thing. You had your own vape. Everyone had their own vape. You know, maybe you tried someone else's or someone tried yours, but it definitely wasn't a communal thing the way sharing joints had always been a communal thing. And to be quite honest, I'm kind of glad we're not sharing joints anymore because I was kind of tired of being in a circle and somebody handing me this like saliva covered, really wet, like resiny joint. And I'm just like, I don't want to put this in my mouth. Um, So, you know, I definitely think that now we see pre-rolls coming in smaller sizes. I think people are recognizing that maybe that's a bit of a cultural relic which is becoming, but I don't think that will go away forever. I mean, you know, the idea of sharing a joint with somebody, the idea of commuting with somebody while cannabis is being shared, whether that's you each have your own joint or you're passing a joint back and forth will always be part of the experience. Yeah, I agree with you. I hope so. Um, We also have another connection. High sobriety. So I, Joe Schrank and Correct. Also memory. Correct me if I'm wrong. But Joe Schrank uh, reached out to me whatever many years ago and he's like, hey, uh, can you come up with a protocol for a soft landing for high sobriety? And, uh, you know, I gave him my thoughts on that. And then he shared, I believe he shared a protocol that you created for high sobriety. Is my memory uh, correct or you? you um, mostly there? correct. Okay. I. I definitely did work with high sobriety. Um, you know, they were one of the first cannabis inclusive treatment centers for substance mm-hmm. use disorder. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I've developed a lot of these protocols over the years for how people can substitute cannabis for other things, how they can use cannabis to treat withdrawal symptoms, mm-hmm. how they can use cannabis as a maintenance therapy. Um, and so it's definitely possible. Uh, I still have high hopes for our cannabis inclusive treatment centers. I think that, you know, plant medicine inclusive treatment centers are going to kind of change. So, you know, I don't think it's cannabis specific. I think we're going to see ketamine assisted treatment centers and ayahuasca assisted treatment centers and psilocybin assisted treatment centers. I mean, I just watched the season finale of Nine Perfect Strangers this morning. And um, I have to say for one of the first mainstream forays for psychedelics, I thought it was exceptionally done. I was, that was my next question about plant medicine. Uh, I was going to ask you how you felt about plant medicine and uh, what you think the future of, you know, therapeutics uh, are in the plant medicine. I'll give you a little bit of an insight in, into what we're doing in that space too. Uh, but I'm curious about your thoughts, but you, you basically started uh, talking about that already. So maybe you can expand a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, as excited as I am about cannabis as a therapeutic tool, and I mean, obviously, I've been studying it for 20 years. So I think it is an extremely valuable therapeutic tool. I'm actually a little bit more excited about the therapeutic potential of other entheogenic plants that we're now just getting access to legally. Uh, The research on depression and psilocybin, um, you know, the research on ayahuasca, PTSD, opiate dependence. I mean, it's really just fantastic. I think that psychedelics have gotten a lot of a bad name because of ideas about people freaking out in the 1960s and, you know, running through windows. And while it's absolutely true that there's a higher risk of a kind of psychotic situation with psychedelics as there was with cannabis, I also think that the healing potential for psychedelic and other entheogenic plants is absolutely astounding and unlike anything we've seen so far in our lifetime, including cannabis. So the idea that we're having more access to these things, the idea that we're having these discussions about decriminalization and legalization is 
very, very exciting. And one of the reasons I started Personal Plants, which we call the food network, but for entheogenic plants. So the idea is encouraging people to grow their own, giving them all the tools and education that they need to kind of take that journey on their own and with guides rather than having to rely on the traditional medical system for health. And I absolutely see a shift towards the desire for plant medicines. I think part of it is people are just tired of pharmaceuticals. Um, they're tired of the side effects. They're tired of the dependence and they're looking for alternatives. And these plants were never presented to them as viable alternatives before. And so that is extremely exciting to me. Um, you know, I was in Chicago recently for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and their friends were coming up to me at the party and asking me about microdosing, psilocybin, were asking me about the use of psychedelic plans to treat depression and anxiety. And so I'm really hopeful that we're almost you know, not to sound too hippy-dippy, but we're kind of like approaching a plant medicine renaissance where we're going to see people really embrace these medicines and seek to understand them. And I think one of the best things about plant medicines is that they require you to be very present in the moment. And it's not about popping a pill, which is a very mindless activity. It's more about thinking about what you're putting in your body, the preparation that you're using, the different plants you're putting together, and really understanding similarly to creating a recipe for health with food, how bringing different plant medicines into your daily life can really improve your health and wellness and on a mainstream scale that we just haven't seen before. Yeah, I, you, you're absolutely correct about intention, setting the right intention of what it is. Um, I actually had a personal experience last weekend. I went to a Shabbat dinner where we uh, were at the end of dinner, we decided to microdose on some chocolate psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty experienced consumer of uh, psilocybin, you know, I've been doing it for, for many years here and there, not on an ongoing basis, but since microdosing is in style now, and I do, I do think that there is a, uh, there's the benefit that I personally get, and by the way, everything is personal, uh, it's the name of the podcast, but everything is personal because, you know, you and I can have a completely different experience with the same uh, you know, psychotropic or whatever it is uh, that we consume. But, uh, you know, for me, it's sort of like uh, the way I describe to people, and this is for me, uh, when I microdosed a certain dose that's right for me, uh, it's sort of like putting my glasses on and everything seems a little clearer. So it's a little fuzzy right now. And I don't, I don't need glasses to see really well, but when I do wear glasses that are optional for me, the green is greener. It's, it's sort of, it's there. I can see clearer. That was not my experience uh, last Friday. Uh, I ended up taking, and this is just a lesson for the audience. Uh, I ended up taking X amount of, uh, maybe it was about two grams, which is not a humongous amount for me, but it's a little more than what I would typically take in a microdose. But the thing that I did not ask, which is really important, what type of mushrooms am I consuming? And this is something that everybody should be aware of. The same way that we are taking different uh, types of, uh, you know, cultivars and chemovars, there are different strains of uh, mycelium. There's different strains of uh, mushrooms. And this was uh, an albino penis envy uh, yes. strain that I was not familiar with until I went and did some research with some of Paul Stamets' work and, and everything. I was like, oh, you mean different strains create a different uh, effect and a, a very, I would say that I had a very intense, profound experience, which I did not expect. 
to have. And then somebody at the, where I was at the dinner decided that um, they should also offer me a bit of ketamine to be able to regulate my, uh, my journey because it was more intense than I wanted it to be, which, which probably is not a good idea also to consume a disassociative at the same time. So the point that I'm making is one of the reasons why we're, we have a test that's coming out for, for this as well that we filed patent for. We had an experience that was very similar to mine, but it was for a, uh, in a treatment center that was treating somebody for whatever uh, condition with ketamine. And I was on the phone with the doctor and they were, they were doing a ketamine treatment. And I heard all this yelling and commotion. And she's like, oh, I have to call you back. Something's going on. So she called me back. She said, this person that was getting their treatment had a psychotic experience. I was like, oh, well, what if we could use DNA for several different things? Number one, to try to help uh, predict which, which psychotropic is more associated with the symptomatic condition that you want to treat. So let's say depression. Okay, well, we have MDMA, we have psilocybin, we have ketamine. These are all categories that fit this symptomatic condition based on studies that have been done. Within that, what are the symptomatic conditions? What are the adverse effects of each one of those? And then uh, from there, what symptomatic, what adverse effects is this person prone to? So let's say they select ketamine because it's legal. It was, uh, it was done in the state of Florida. Okay. Then this person has a predisposition to uh, stress reactivity and that stress reactivity can cause uh, you know, a psychotic episode of psychosis, if they have a predisposition to that. So if we can tell somebody in advance, if you're choosing ketamine, that's in the category, but also mitigate the adverse effects they can have by beta blockers or, or even a guide, somebody holding somebody's hand, as simple as that, doesn't have to be anything else. This will help people have a much more positive experience in their journey than sort of going into a blind. So that's something that, you know, we're, we're definitely coming out and, and going to uh, help people to have that experience. But I believe that THC especially, and maybe other, uh, you know, psycho, psycho, maybe other uh, phytocannabinoids and mix, that's also psychotropic and should be in that category as well. And I don't think people realize when they're consuming that, and I've had so many people say, I had an experience. And even some people had a say psychosis-like experience, psychotomatic experience, because they consumed not only too much THC, they took it as an edible, they're, an old, they're a poor metabolizer. So all those combinations together trigger that genetic expression. So I, I think as the generations grow up a little bit and, and people don't want to really have an intense experience, some people do, but they want a more therapeutic experience. I think that's uh, all this work that we're doing will help guide people in a, in a better experience with their psychedelics, I guess, and psychotropics. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it all used to be a crapshoot, right? You go into a dispensary to buy an edible and it was just like a cookie wrapped in cellophane, like, like, you know, bake sale, bake sale style. Yeah. And you really had no idea how much THC was in it. Um, you had no idea how to dose yourself. And there are people that had really bad experiences as a result. So yeah. I do think that educating people is important, but giving them the accurate information that they need in order to make those decisions about which medicine is best for them is also really important. Absolutely. hundred percent. Okay. I have three questions for you. Okay. But, and I usually say they're difficult, but I'm not going to say they're difficult because they're not. And I mess around with people that I, it's not, not worth it. it, it 
kind of cheating. Anyway, please describe your first experience with cannabis. So my first experience with cannabis was like at 16 years old when I was in high school in Indiana and like somebody had a party and they had like this really bad swag from the day and the little hit one hitter that looked like a cigarette that came in the wooden box and you would like the dugout. Right. So that was my first experience with cannabis. But the first time I got high, because I didn't get high for like a few years when I first smoked cannabis was when I was in college and I was like 18 and I was at the dorm. I was at the University of Texas at the time and somebody gave me some cannabis and I smoked it and I got so stoned that I couldn't talk. And I remember my friend was telling one of those jokes that goes on for like 10 minutes and I was was so glad he was telling that joke because I was like, I can't talk. So I need someone else to be entertaining everyone because if they look at me to answer a question or say something, I cannot. But I loved it. I mean, from the very first time I ever, ever used cannabis, I felt like my endocannabinoid system was very excited about what was happening. And yeah. for me, it's always been a regulator as a substance. Yeah. Great. Uh I'm a music guy. Uh, I don't know if you can tell. I albums and all that stuff, and pictures. Uh, do you remember the first concert you ever attended? Oh yes, absolutely. It was Neil Diamond. All right. Uh, yeah, I was like four, and my parents took me because I loved coming to America. Like I loved the album, and I loved the movie, and like you know, like or, or the. Um, the jazz singer was the, the jazz singer. and coming to America was the track was the song. Yeah. Right. They're and I love it so America. much. Yep. So they yep. took me to the concert and I cried because it was too loud. Um, but other than that, I really enjoyed myself. Yeah. They, they wear headphones, not kids. They have, I know. Yeah. Back though. then they just had my parents putting their hands over my ears. Yeah, I didn't even have low, that. My, low tech. <laughs> yeah. My, my ears. I, I went so many shows like uh, my, my friend, we were at a, a dinner or something like that. And he's like, take it down, take it down a notch. I'm like, what? He goes, you're so loud. I'm like, I can't even hear because I have yeah. once thousands of concerts and my ears or my hearing is messed up from there. Uh, it's funny. So the first movie, I, I immigrated here when I was six years old from Lithuania uh, with my parents. And the first movie I saw in a movie theater in America was a jazz singer. Really? I think back in 1980, I want to say, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, love that movie. Uh, do you remember what the first album you bought was or CD? Um, or I don't know. Well, I mean, I remember having eight tracks when I was a kid and I don't think I bought it myself because I didn't have any money or way to buy things or Amazon. Um, but I do remember that I had the Saturday night fever soundtrack, oh, yeah. um, eight track tape. That was like my favorite. And I listened to that over and over and over again. And the other record because it was an actual record that I really, really loved when I was little was the soundtrack to American Graffiti. Oh yeah. That's great. Classic. Uh, what has cannabis meant in your life? Well, cannabis has kind of given me my life, both personally and professionally. You know, I started using cannabis uh, as medicine in my early 20s because I was diagnosed with arthritis, which then became degenerative disc disease, which is what I have now. So I use cannabis now daily just to like get up and function and walk around and exercise and do all the things I like to do. So, you know, personally, it's absolutely given me my life and prevented my need to go on to pharmaceutical drugs for these past 20 years. And then professionally, um, you know, they'd say right place, right time, right? Timing is everything. And coming to the Bay Area in 2002, being in a position of 
being a PhD student at Berkeley, having Berkeley be very supportive of my work in a time when it was still highly stigmatized, and then having access to dispensaries because I was a patient. All of those things coming together afforded me the opportunity to start studying cannabis when it was really just a flicker in society's eye and to be able to follow that through all the way to when it's like one of the major topics that's being discussed uh, is a bit of privilege and a pleasure. Yeah, that's very well. So who's, who's the friend that's uh, coming over to you say, saying hello? Oh, that's Gracie. <laughs> she likes to be on Zoom. Yeah, so the, my, my, <laughs> mine is sits on my lap. I have a, uh, that's Hershey. Hi, so, Hershey. I know a donkey named Hershey. She's like, okay, am I supposed to do anything? <laughs> I, you know, just go back to sleep. Well, I've <laughs> actually got, I have five animals. Oh, this is okay. just one, one of the five. This what? is the most in your face one. What kind of animals do you have? Uh, we've got three rescue kitties. And we've got two rescue dogs. Uh, Both are um, mixes, but uh, we did get their DNA done because when we adopted one of our dogs, Bojack, Bojack Dogman, um, from the shelter, (laughs) they told us he was a pit bull black lab mix. And um, now he's 110 pounds. And so we knew there was something else going on in his DNA. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's cool. All right. Final question. Yes. Bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up? Well, I lived in many different rooms because remember phone Mm -hmm. company brat. So I had, you know, I went to like four different elementary schools um, in four different states. I had a lot of bedrooms, but the one that was my most recent bedroom before I moved out of my parents' house and went to college, I actually had a mural painted on my wall of the ocean of the beach. So I had the ocean, I had an umbrella, I had the sun and I had a little wooden seagull that hung from the ceiling and you could pull it and his wings flapped. And, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I always dreamed of living near the beach. And so I tried to bring some of that to myself. I also had a waterbed to complete, you know, the picture. Uh, And that was my room. And of course there was no TV and no computer and none of that because there was not, well, there was television, but you know, yeah. there was no like smartphones and tablets and all the stuff kids have in their rooms today. So, but, but you don't have like posters or anything of that of, uh, um, not because I had the mural and it yeah, wouldn't make sense for no. like people to be in the ocean. Right. Um, yeah. but I think when I was younger, I mean, I probably had some posters up, you know, I was a big, um, Leonardo DiCaprio fan, but like from uh, when he was on growing pains. Right. Um, <laughs> so I think I had some of those posters up in my room, but yeah, that was never really my style. I yeah. always kind of just like to have the room decorated without having to hang stuff. I think my parents told me that I should never hang things on the wall and never put bumper stickers on my car. There you go. <laughs> Good <laughs> advice. I like it. Uh, Mana, where can people find out more about you, about uh, personal plants, about all the work that you're doing, uh, social, where can people contact you? Sure. Well, I'd love for people to check out our website, which is mypersonalplants.com. We've got some great articles, everything from psychedelic psilocybin tea to how to create a sacred space, even if you live in a small home, just all kinds of tips for using plant medicine in your daily life. Um, and you can follow Personal Plants, has tons of social accounts, follow us on Instagram at Personal Plants. And then I would say for me personally, uh, probably Twitter is the best place to find me. So at Amanda Ryman on Twitter, um, I have other social accounts as well, but Twitter is usually where I like to talk the most. I'm not a big Facebook person. Great. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation.
guys. All right, take care. All the you best. too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.